The conversation has sounded like there's been a disconnect between the way that governments and media and popular opinion views trade in 2023 and the way that firms seem to be behaving on the ground. The AIG Global Trade Series 2023 is a series of podcasts brought to you by AIG in partnership with some of the world's leading centers of expertise on global trade. Visit www.aig.com forward slash GTS. The series moderator is Rem Kortovec of the Klingendal Institute. Hello and welcome to this episode of the AIG Global Trade Series 2023. This is your host, Rem Korteweg, from the Klingendal Institute in the Netherlands. Today's topic is, where does globalization go from here? The past year, we have seen a major focus on supply chains and how trade, particularly trade in goods, is changing. The G7 has launched initiatives to create secure supply chains. The EU has presented an economic security strategy. And in the US, there's been a lot of talk about decoupling, or is it de-risking? Now, much of this is connected to reducing unwanted economic dependencies that governments are worried about, reducing the chances of economic coercion, and it has sparked a new focus on understanding global value chains, promoting diversification, fueling industrial policy, as well as subsidies, and we've seen the introduction of a new concept called friendshoring. In the meantime, trade seems to be moving along. So how much change has actually occurred? And how have Asia, Europe, and the United States responded to or even helped design some of these trends? And what does this mean for the future of global trade? What we want to do today is to look back at 2023, what's happened in the year of trade, as well as anticipate the year ahead. We want to zoom in on the question of how globalization is changing, and whether we are seeing the emergence of regional trading blocks and more regionalism in the global trade landscape, and what this tells us about global trade in 2024. Today, I'm privileged to explore these issues with three brilliant experts that I'm very pleased to introduce to you. So from Sweden, we're joined by Cecilia Malmström. And Cecilia, of course, needs no introduction, but she is the former European Commissioner for Trade. She is also a former MEP and joined the Peterson Institute for International Economics as non-resident senior fellow in June 2021. She is also, of course, the host of the Peterson Institute's Trade Wins bi-weekly virtual event series, which comes highly recommended. She's also a visiting professor at the School of Business, Economics and Law at the University of Gothenburg. And we're very pleased to have her on the podcast. From Shanghai, I'm joined by John Min Sung. John Min is a partner at the McKinsey Global Institute. He leads the Global Institute's research teams in China, working on global as well as China-focused themes. John Ming's recent research has focused on global flows, technology, innovation, and China's economic transition. And he has co-authored several Global Institute reports and discussion papers, including very relevant one entitled Global Flows, The Ties That Bind in an Interconnected World. And finally, from Singapore, I'm joined by Deborah Elms. Deborah is the founder and executive director of the Asian Trade Center and the president of the Asia Business Trade Association. 
Concurrently, she is a member of APCO's International Advisory Council, the G20 Trade and Investment Research Network, and the Advisory Board of the Trade and Investment Negotiation Advisor at the United Nations Economic and Social Commission for Asia and the Pacific. She is very much one of the leading experts on trade policy in the region. A very warm welcome to all three of you. Now let's get started. And Cecilia, if I may, I'd like to start with you. What has struck you most when it comes to trade in 2023? What is the most important development you think that has shaped our current conversations on trade policy? Well, hello and thank you. I'm so happy to be in your podcast um, and with this uh, fantastic company. Well, I think 2023 was the year where we saw a continuation of the post-COVID trade policies and notably a great focus on geopolitics. What formerly was just in time has become just in case. And also with the latest buzzword, French or just with friends. And this is something that is not threatening globalization. I do not concur with those who say globalization is dead. Uh, it is very much happening, but it is changing. And probably we are moving towards bigger regionalization. We are moving towards a different kind of trade. And it is, at least from Europe and the US side, stained with a lot of protectionism, a lot of industrial policy, and a lot of questioning of why was trade agreements good in the first place, which is, is a bit odd maybe in this uh, this context, but, but that trade is mainly a tool to preserve national security. We've seen that before in history, but I don't think we've seen it as much as we see today. And of course, the events in the world with a brutal war in Ukraine, and now it's a little bit too early to say what effects it will have on supply chain and oil prices, the, the, the war in, 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 in the Middle East, is underlining this. For us in Europe, it was a brutal wake up to see how some countries are so dependent on Russian oil and gas. So that diversification had to happen very, very quickly. And now the West and many other countries are also seeing that we are very dependent on one supplier, notably China, when it comes to to minerals and rare earth metals, which are so important for the whole green transition, electric vehicles, uh, the, the greening of energy. So that is what I think is, is the biggest trend in trade policy today, and it's likely to continue. Thanks for that. And, and, and I'm sure we're going to unpack some of those elements in, uh, in our conversation. But I want to bring in Zhou Ming from Shanghai. I, I think, you know, a lot of trade developments have impacted China and have also a lot of trade conversations have revolved around China. What, from your perspective, has been the most important trade story in 2023? Yeah, I'm actually quite surprised by the resilience of the, uh, the global value chain in 2023. Right? So global trade may not grow much this year, but it actually reached record highs in 2021 and 2022. And, and, and that is because, you know, thanks to the, uh, the interconnectedness of the world, in my view. And, um, you know, this interconnectedness played a crucial role during times when factories in the Western world faced, you know, significant disruptions. And, and during that time, you know, Asian economies stepped in to bridge the gap and meet the soaring demand in other regions during the, the post-COVID recovery phase. And another example of this uh, resilience is uh, pricing dynamics. You know, take, for instance, the prices of corn, wheat, and sunflower oil. Initially, they saw significant spikes of 20 to 50%, you know, following the Russian invasion of Ukraine. However, you know, they returned to pre-war level now. 
Thanks very much. And we'll talk, uh, I mean, both of you already in different ways have, have shed some light on, on, on the question of whether globalization is, is changing. And we'll refer to that in a, in a second. But I want to ask Deborah this same question. When you think about 2023, what is the trade story that, that stuck out most for you? I think I would say that there's been a disconnect between the way that governments and media and popular opinion views trade in 2023 and the way that firms seem to be behaving on the ground. So while the conversation through much of 2023 has been about decoupling or de-risking, about friend shoring, near shoring, fill in the blank, what kind of shoring, about building up supply chains for this just-in-case scenario, for diversification of supply chains, building up resilience, working on a China plus one strategy. I mean, there's all kinds of stories that we have heard. The reality on the ground, especially when you talk to companies, has been uh, quite different from that. So the conversation has sounded like we have tremendous shifts taking place in 2023. And yet the evidence seems to suggest both the large global evidence, regional evidence, and certainly when you talk to companies, that we are still at a phase that looks similar to what we saw in 2022 and pre-COVID, which is that we still have globalization, we still have supply chains, they still run regionally, they still run globally. We have some changes along the margins. There are some supply chains that have moved more quickly than others, but on the whole, I think you would find that life as a consumer and life as a company, more challenging, more cost for a variety of other reasons, but the, the trade story looks surprisingly similar as we come to the end of 2023. What I think, and I, just to, to sort of preface where I think you'll be going next, 2024 may be a time of actual shifts on the ground. But again, it depends on, on how we translate some of the policy conversations into the market structure that firms are responding to. And so it could be the case that we're just in a wait and see period in 2023, and we will actually see delivery of something different coming in 2024. Yeah, no, no, and and I mean, very much prefacing what I was going to ask next, but um, I guess it, more immediately is is why is there such a disconnect, and and who are the most important shapers of global trade? Is it the policymakers that seem to be? viewing trade more through that national security lens, or is it the firms that actually build build the global value chains? I mean, who owns the truth in this, in this context? Well, I'll take a stab at it to start with. I would say that it's very simple for a policymaker to make a statement like the world needs to think harder about resilience or firms need to be friendshoring. It is quite different if you are the firm on the ground and you have to figure out where are we going to manufacture products? Where are we going to source our suppliers from? Where are we going to deliver our services? Most of those decisions come with costs. And so I think for a firm, especially as they face larger, higher costs in general in 2023 and potentially into 2024, this is a tough time for a company that is already struggling pre, you know, through the COVID situation, changes in supply and demand to abruptly decide to change their supply chain footprints. And so I think it's, for me, it's not a surprise that it's easy to say, it's actually hard to execute. And so I think firms are still at a wait and see, a bit of a wait and see. How difficult will it be for us to continue with business as usual? 
We've looked for alternatives. A lot of firms will have looked for alternative suppliers, et cetera. And in many cases, they've discovered that the supply chain footprint that they have is actually the most suited to the current conditions. And until something changes dramatically, they may stick with that. They may say, yeah, it's a little bit more risky. It's a little bit challenging. But until something gets even more challenging, we're going to stick with business as usual or closer to business as usual. Doesn't this also relate to John Ming's point that value chains have actually proven to be remarkably resilient also in times of either geopolitical tensions or other forms of supply supply chain risks? John Ming? Yeah. And then also to your question about, you know, who will play an important role, right? So in, in our view, the role of multinational companies will be critical, right? In terms of reshaping and reconfiguring the global value chain, because they account for two thirds of the global export, right? And then, you know, many news headlines report on companies relocating their factories to new location. But, uh, if history is any guide, and, and our view is that the pace of uh, such relocation is likely to be gradual, and we conducted an analysis to gauge how much countries gained or lost their export share in various types of value chains over the past decade. For most countries, you know, the shift was quite marginal, usually less than 0.5 percentage point per year. Even in the case of China, the change was around one to two percentage points per year. And, and this is because for companies to take such actions, a complete ecosystem is required. And, and this ecosystem includes many things, right? Such as uh, robust infrastructure, skilled labor force, stable electricity and water supply, as well as clusters of upstream and downstream partners. And, and building and establishing these kind of clusters take significant time and financial resources. I mean, coming back to Cecilia, you, you did mention in your opening comment that globalization isn't dead, but it is changing. So from your point of view, where do you see these changes take place? Is it, is it in other areas than, than what multinational companies seem to be doing? Well, I think what, what Deborah and Yomi has, has been saying is very important because there is a very clear disconnect between what policy leaders are saying and the political debate and what is actually happening. Uh, and if you look at it broadly, trade overall, uh, I think it's absolutely correct that the value chains have been rather stable and resilient. We have seen some changes. I mentioned the, the, the energy issue in Europe, for instance, where, of course, there has been uh, new providers. We also see in some places in, in northern Africa when they couldn't buy grains from, from, from Ukraine, that we have seen a, a shift towards the, you know, buy from Latin America and from other providers. And when you talk to companies about rare earth, they are trying to find a broader diversification, but that's, that is not easy. So, so there, there is absolutely a, a change there. But I would say that the change is more on the rhetoric plan than, than uh, actually. And maybe there, there's, you know, lagging behind. We'll see next year when this materializes also in, in companies' behavior. But there seems to be, and again, I'm referring very much to, to Europe and, and to the US, because I think it's a totally different, when I travel to Asia, and I, I do not have at all the expertise as Deborah and Yongming, but I never hear anybody talking about the death of globalization there. I don't know how many panels I've been to where people say, oh, globalization is dead, or re-globalization, or slow-globalization, or what have you. There seems to be a willingness from policymakers to, to sort of say that, that 
the world is, is a miserable place right now. And, and it's because too much globalization when actually it's the other way around. How would we ever have found a vaccine so quickly against uh, COVID if we hadn't had globalization? Scientists working very, very freely and frequently all over the world, sharing data, being super transparent and working quick. So, and, and trade has proven in the past as well, you know, to lift millions of people out of poverty. And, and it, is, it is basically a good thing. Then there are other things we need to look at, how we divide and how we, we, we spread the, the benefits of this. But that's, you know, benefit system, it's, it's tax policy, it's national policy, it's social systems. And, and so on. Uh, so, so globalization becomes the scapegoat for everything that is evil today. And there's a lot of evil out there. I think Cecilia, you know, just highlighted a very important point, right? So development of the vaccine would, would have not been possible without the, um, the flows of uh, uh, globalization. And in particular, in our view, right? So there is the emergence of new connections, right? Beyond good trade, right? Especially in the a- areas of uh, knowledge and know-how, right? So for example, you know, data flows right, have been growing at around 50% per year and intellectual property at, at around 6% per year in the past decade, which is more than the other uh, double the, the pace of the other goods trade growth. And also you can see this dynamics at the sector level as well, right? So in automotive sector, the share of foreign R&D increased by three times since 2000. In pharmaceutical sector, about half of uh, patent origi- uh, origination involves cross-border collaboration. I'm in Shanghai, and there are more than 500 foreign invested R&D centers here. So this is the new fabric of global connection. That's interesting. So all all three of you are actually quite quite optimistic. But what what to make of these new policies that are being developed, where we see greater reliance on export export controls? There's discussion about reshoring certain activities to reduce dependencies by actually imposing not just inbound investment, but also outbound investment uh, controls, both in a U.S. And a, and a European context. I mean, it's not just a Western debate. Even the WTO mentioned that we're sort of seeing the first indications of something you could call fragmentation. Are these concerns overblown or will they come to haunt us in, in the coming years? I think the concerns are real because if if you look at the debate, if that debate that is now is trickling down into real consequences also for, for companies, companies are encouraged to, to diversify and to decouple or to de-risk. But, but we need to, to look at the whole picture. Yes, there are certain things where we need to have more national sovereignty, I think. When you talk about medical supply, for instance, if there's a coming coming pandemic, and when you talk about certain very critical minerals and metals, you need to diversify the need if we want to be able to, to deliver what we have promised in the Paris Agreement and the climate transition. But trade as a whole, I mean, the 90% of goods and services that are not sensitive their trade, I mean, breaking down value chains would be extremely complicated and extremely expensive. And who's going to pay? Well, that would be individual customers, the people that policymakers claim to defend, you know, talking about American workers, but the American workers will pay a very high price if, if we break down the, 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 the value chains. And, and if 
Friendshoring is put to, to its extreme. Both the WTO, World Bank and IMF and many researchers say that this will actually affect the global GDP with between 5 and 7% and developing countries being hit the most. So this is a very worrying scenario. And when I speak to friends all over the world, they ask, if I'm, am I a friend or a foe? And if I'm not a friend, what am I? So, so this concept of friendshoring and classifying some countries who, that, that are safe all the way in these complicated, it will not be possible. So policymakers is also a little bit trying to fool the, 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 the public opinion because this is actually not possible to break down all the 50 parts in, in an iPhone or a car in, into totally secure countries because that's not why the world how it looks today. So we need to, to, to diversify between really sensitive items and the rest. Yeah, no, and I, and I agree. Like Cecilia, I've been in, in plenty of conversations in, in, in Europe where the focus really seems to be quite pessimistic on where trade is going and that there's going to be a lot more state interventionism in supply chains and a greater role to control certain certain exports, um, not even mentioning the whole discussion about subsidies. And I'm just curious because, you know, Jiaoming, you're in Shanghai and Deborah, you're in Singapore, what, what that conversation about the future of globalization looks like in an Asian context, where, again, also the geopolitics do, of course, play a role as well. Deborah? Well, we, we're not immune in Asia to geopolitical tensions. And there is a way in which those geopolitical tensions can be either a force for positive outcomes in the rest of Asia or negative, right? There, ASEAN, uh, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, in particular, sees this as an opportunity that if you have you know, U.S.-China tens, and you're looking for alternative sourcing for especially goods supplies, then ASEAN is a natural bridge and as a potential solution to, you know, China plus one strategy. And they have been fairly successful at that strategy for quite some time, and they expect to continue that. I think that's possible. Again, as long as the tension between the U.S. and China doesn't flare up into something much more worrisome, at which point it will be very hard even for you know, ASEAN and other countries in Asia to manage to balance between two big global powers. And if you look at the trade flow figures in particular in and around Asia, you know, there are, of course, the U.S. is a huge investor in much of Asia, including in ASEAN, it's the largest investor. But the trade figures, particularly for trade and goods, is biased towards China. And so trying to, and then services is in between more towards the U.S. than certainly from China, but Europe also shows up in this picture. So I think that's not unusual as a region to have conflicting priorities and trying to balance between these tensions, I think has been manageable for many firms. There are some that have had to deal with this much longer and much more concretely than others. But I do think there is a risk that if this geopolitical tension continues to rise and if policymakers are to become much more draconian about the kinds of policies that they put in place, then you have to change your supply chains because then the compliance costs become very high, the risk becomes very high, the potential for penalties becomes enormous. And I think that that is an issue. And then the last thing that I'll just mention quickly, or at least put on the table, is concerns about what happens in the digital space which is you know, underpinning everything that we do now. And we have had 
quite radically different ideas coming about how we manage digital and how we manage data and what we do with that, what's acceptable, what isn't. And I think that does have a risk for changing the picture of globalization. You know, we can't, it's not only that we couldn't create a vaccine, but we would have a difficult time depending on our data rules with even moving things like face masks and syringes because they require data and information to go with those pieces of information, you know, with those products. And so I think the digital split or potential digital fragmentation is something that is paying attention to and will affect globalization in trade and goods, trade and services, investment, and all the rest of it. And just to flag for our listeners, we also have a podcast dedicated specifically to this question of digital fragmentation with uh, Anu Bradford and Karen Kornblue, which you can access in the podcast app. And Joming, in a Chinese policy context, how concerned are folks about you know the debates that seem to be transpiring in, in Europe and the United States to be much more critical about having supply chain exposure to China, to being invested in China, or, or perhaps even restricting some, some exports to China? So um, it, it will, the, the dynamics will vary by sector, right? So in so-called critical sectors, right? So, you know, this is a very, very big topic, right? So because, you know, companies in semiconductors or pharmaceuticals or critical minerals, you know, they will now need to pay more attention to those you know, export control measures or qualification for subsidies, et cetera. And then in terms of, you know, critical technology, foundational technology, China and many other Asian economies, they are still dependent on foreign input. In case of China, China's IP import is three times greater than IP export. For India, it is nine times, right? So therefore, it is critical to ensure smooth you know, global uh, uh, flows, right, to, to support the development of those sectors. For many other sectors, right, so still, you know, market factors will continue to play an important role. And in electronics and, and textiles, for example, you know, um, you know, there, as Deborah mentioned, you know, the, the so-called China plus one strategy and also RCEP, right? So they are creating the other opportunities for, you know, many economies in Asia and, and Vietnam and India particularly stand out, right? And, and that is also because, you know, their local demand is growing. Therefore, many companies want to serve the local demand out of the, uh, the, those local footprint as well. In services tech sectors, I think there is still huge opportunity for many Asian economies and, and, and also the world because, you know, the globalization is not done yet, right? So there is a still huge room for further liberalization of tariffs and then also value chain unbundling by leveraging technologies, right? And, and for example, the remote working solution is getting, you know, widely adopted, especially accelerated by COVID. And therefore, you know, there is a much bigger scope for knowledge-related services, you know, such as design and engineering and analytics to be delivered from anywhere in the world, in, including many Asian economies. But, and, and then still, uh, whether it's geopolitical risks or whether it's, um, you know, a container ship that's blocking the Suez Canal, how should countries and companies think about the risks of concentration of trade in particular areas or on dependency on specific supply chains. I mean, I, I think it's noteworthy that the U.S. debate seems to have changed a little bit from moving away from decoupling more towards de-risking. But I'm curious to see how you see companies respond to this and what should countries learn from that in terms of their policymaking? 
Yeah. So indeed, this uh, concentration topic is uh, is is very critical. You know, therefore, how to manage it is very relevant for companies and and countries, right? And we analyzed about you know six thousand globally traded products, and then and then found out that um, about forty percent is concentrated, meaning forty percent of the uh, the value of goods trade corresponds to the cases where the importing economies rely on just three or, or fewer economies for the supply of a, a given product. And of course, you know, there are different types of concentration, you know, global concentration, economic concentration, etc. And the, the actions that companies are, uh, are taking is, uh, is multiple, you know, fold, right? So one is, you know, think about, you know, more substitution, right? So if there are, if there are critical products, right? So that uh, maybe at the risk of uh, supply chain disruption, then you can find an alternative. You know, second action is uh, diversification, right? So from one location to another. And, and third uh, action is more localization, right? So in case of China, you know, companies are exploring to strengthen so-called in China for China uh, supply chain to be able to respond to the market more quickly. Cecilia, do you see European companies taking some of these lessons on board? I think they are in, in practice. Uh, I mean, most of them are actually thinking very much in terms of de-risking rather than decoupling. And if we talk about China, for instance, um, Europe is, I mean, there are, there are tensions, there, there are concerns about uh, level playing field, uh, about specific actions, but Europe is also trading a lot with China. So decoupling from China is not realistic. And also there is a, a feeling from a political level that, that if we're ever going to... to solve the the challenges of the multilateral system reforming WTO for instance or whatever we want to do linking trade and and the greening of trade we need to work with China who has one of some of the best green technologies in the world developed so we need to have that cooperation as well so companies are as as Yum said uh, trying to diversify a little bit trying to be a little bit more flexible trying to be a little bit uh, more resilient in different ways but but very much making the difference between sensitive goods and services and the rest i think we've now kind of d- described what the problems and the solutions are but what should countries do next year and so in light of these these broader developments, how should policymakers respond? And I'm curious, particularly looking at you, Deborah, Asia seems to be very dynamic. I mean, a lot of new trade initiatives are are being bounced around, whether it's massive RCEP and, and, and CPTPP trade agreements, then there's IPEF with the United States, there are digital agreements that are being developed. To what extent is that really a regional Asian story? And to what extent is there also a role for, say, outside trading partners like the EU to, to, to play a role? Could you give us a sense of where you see the Europe-Asia dimension moving forward, given these trends? Sure. I mean, certainly in Asia, the integration impulse remains strong. These are very trade-dependent economies. They understand that if you have tension and if you have a restructuring taking place of the way in which the world system into, operates, then having regional agreements is a way to buttress open markets and a way to ensure that you do not suddenly lose access to good services, investment, IP, et cetera, that is valuable to you, valuable to your companies, valuable to your citizens. 
So Asia has been strongly engaged in integration efforts and remains strongly engaged in those efforts, particularly the middle powers, those players like you know Japan or Singapore or New Zealand or Australia who have been at the forefront of some, all kinds of commitments with one another to try to ensure as much as you can. Now, no, again, let me just be clear that no trade agreement is 100% solution to anything, but it rem- it's a valuable tool at a time of great disruption for ensuring that governments behave in certain ways and not in others, for keeping those markets open, for keeping the the risks lowered and the uncertainty reduced for, for companies who are trading between places that have a trade agreement in place, especially a good comprehensive trade agreement. And the fact that we have all of these countries that are looking to join these agreements, I think is indication that it is an impulse that is not just an Asian impulse, but also outside of the region, including in CPTPP, for example, we have a number of Latin American countries that have lined up to join this agreement. But the integration impulse is a challenge. And I would just mention one last thing, which is, you know, we've had recent news that the European Union and Australia have been unable to conclude a trade agreement. And I think it shows that although you have desires to connect, sometimes there are other factors that get in the way. (laughs) And so, you know, I don't know how effectively Europe will continue to, to pursue integration activities with Asia directly. I think there will be a number of folks who are casting a close eye over what has happened between the EU and Australia. Some of it is very particular to those two markets, right? So we have two agricultural countries trying to sign a trade agreement. That's a special case that not the, re- the rest of Asia doesn't have to worry so much about. But it does suggest that there is more concern about trade agreements from some markets, and certainly the Europeans, I would say, is one of them, the Americans is another, and that runs counter to the integration impulses that you still see in Asia. And Cecilia, I mean, I know that in your time as commissioner, you thought and worked a lot on building trade ties between the EU and Asian economies. Where do you see that discussion now moving towards? Well, we do have trade agreements with a number of countries, with South Korea, with Japan, with Singapore, with Vietnam, New Zealand is entering into force very soon. I launched the EU Australia negotiations. So I was, of course, hoping that they would conclude that it's stuck on agriculture, basically. And I think it's not dead. It's just it needs a pause to reflect. So it's not like the EU is disengaging from the region. This was, uh, as Deborah said, you know, the offers were not good enough or, or not, to, you know, they couldn't couldn't agree on it. This is my, my personal view. I think that the EU should seek to join the CPTPP. I think that would make all the sense in the world. Not that it would add so much extra market access because trade agreements bilaterally almost exist with all these countries or are in negotiations. But being part of this dynamic, being part of now the UK is joining uh, several other countries, as Deborah mentioned, is applying. China is joining and making you know good efforts to to try to align with the requirements there. And being part of of that group, setting rules and standards and developing, I think that would be a fantastic opportunity. Now, this is not the view of the European Commission today, but I think it should be explored at least because this is an area where where we have every mutual interest to truly cooperate and try to bring each other's you know dimensions and also because cptpp has ambition when it comes to you know the social responsibility on high environmental standards and and the like so, so that that's also where where you could contribute 
Yeah, and in a way, the UK joining CPTPP is an interesting sort of precedent where that the EU can also kind of look at and see uh, what kind of lessons to learn from from the UK's experience of being part of this group. But of course, China wants to join. China wants to join too. I mean, John Ming, I don't know what 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 you hear in in Shanghai about the prospects of uh, of being part of the CPTPP. It's of course part of RCEP, but I, I'm curious how how you read these two big regional initiatives or actually pan-regional initiatives and also what what kind of expectations you have of engagement with Europe. So I cannot read the mind of uh, Chinese policymakers, <laughs> but if I share my own view, right, on what countries need to do, right? So uh you know, the, all, all countries need to uh, ensure the effectiveness of uh, global flows, right, in order to address you know, global priorities, whether that's CPTPP or RCEP or bilateral, unilateral trade agreement. And take uh, the climate transition, for example, right? So the climate transition will be also minerals intensive. And then, you know, to achieve a 50% EV penetration by 2050, which is uh, consistent with a net zero scenario, Global production of uh, lithium and cobalt and nickel need to increase by 20 to 30 times. But if you look at the landscape of uh, minerals mining and, and, and processing, you know, it is highly, highly concentrated, right? So if you look at the minings of uh, critical minerals like graphite or nio- niobium or, or cobalt and others, top three countries, you know, account for somewhere between 50 to 100% of uh, production. And they come from various countries, including Chile, Brazil, Congo, Guinea, Indonesia, etc. Likewise, when you look at the other refining stage, China alone accounts for 50 to 100 percent of share across many of these. Right. So therefore, you know, if, if, if we want to address these global priorities, uh, we, we need to make the globalization and global flows work. And do you think uh, this is, I guess, to all three of you looking in your crystal ball, how can we imagine globalization changing in the in the years ahead will we see more multilateral cooperation i mean we we really haven't talked about the united states that much i mean the us of course plays a very important role in this as well or are we going to see more globalization moving forward because of these regional integration efforts i think the global conversation is going to be rocky for a while certainly in the trade and economic front uh, i don't see this the tensions there subsiding meaningfully in any near term. So that does create some real challenges. And the pressures, particularly on the World Trade Organization, which is coming up to yet another ministerial in which probably very little will happen, is a problem. You know, and and I think for businesses in particular, I would say we have kind of forgotten how valuable those WTO rules are for providing the underpinning for globalization. Those are the rules on which we all function. And if it goes down, then we don't have the rules. <laughs> you know, we've lost the oxygen from the air that we're breathing. And I think it is a real problem that requires some concerted attention, particularly by businesses, to government about why it matters, why it matters that we have consistent global rules, why you can't have, despite the importance of these regional agreements, why they can't substitute for a consistent global regime. And I think that's an area that is really important and keeps going under the radar. So we have a lot of challenges on our plate. You know, obviously the, the carbon transition has already been mentioned, rising, you know, geopolitical tensions, et cetera. There are lots of things aging, et cetera. But I think 
we need a global system that works and we need to remember how important it is to us as we move towards next year and beyond to make sure that it's fit for purpose but that it functions and cecilia i know you work a lot on the transatlantic trade dimension i mean there's a very intense debate between the us and the eu trying to whether it's the green steel initiative or other things that are connected to the trade and technology council how do you see the the, the transatlantic trade dimension fit into this broader multilateral context that Deborah described? Well, I fully agree with her that in a time where we need more international cooperation than ever, it is awkward and sad that strong international organizations do not exist. I mean, WTO, T20, uh, G7, the United Nations, they're, they're all weaker than they've been in many, many years. And we so desperately need to come together and solve the common challenges that we have. We have done it in the past after the Second World War, and it turned out to be very beneficial for the world. Uh, and now if it's falling apart, it will be the rule of the jungle. And that, that is not good for, for anybody. The transatlantic uh, partnership is, of course, strong in many ways. And, um, you know, there are different ways where, where cooperation is, is ongoing. There are tensions. I don't think there would be dramatic changes the coming years. We have some upcoming elections, which, of course, is, is um, affecting both the debate in the US particularly, but also in the European Union. We have upcoming European Parliament elections. And even if they do not do the policy for the transatlantic exchange, after that, there will be changes in the Commission uh, and, and, and the leadership and, and so on. So, so I think they will continue to talk and try to find agreements. I don't expect any big breakthroughs. What is important is, of course, to say that the Trade and Tech Council, which is a forum of cooperation with lots of subcommittees where they talk not so much trade, actually, but, but standards, WTO, semiconductors, green technology and, and green trade. It, it's useful. It's underused. It could deliver much more. But I think the most important issue is to Trump-proof it, to make sure that it survives if Trump comes back to, to the White House and that, that on the civil servant level that there are institutional regular meetings that, that can continue whoever sits in, in, in the White House and then take it from there. It's very interesting, listening to the three of you, that it, it, there seems to be a paradox. On the one hand, all three of you in different ways have said that... Um, Trade seems to be holding up pretty well. Global value chains are working. Companies aren't really reaching for the alarm bell. They're trying to keep trade moving, and it, it, it is still moving. And on the other hand, there's the more pessimistic view when talking about policy, about where the policy debate is moving towards. And I'm just curious, and this is the last question, unfortunately, but I'm going to pose it to all three of you. Like When you look into your crystal ball, what should we be focused on for 2024? I mean, what's this? This is our season finale. I mean, we are approaching the dark days of December, or we're in the dark days of December. What really should we think about might be the most defining development for trade in 2024, or perhaps the biggest wish for 2024? What are this, the solutions or the, the initiatives or the breakthroughs that we might be able to reach? So I don't know who wants to go first, but whoever has a Christmas wish list, by all means. I have a small one, which I think is useful still. I mean, I would like people to spend some time, individuals, thinking about how trade matters in the first hour of their day. So if you to, to have people who got up in the morning and started thinking about all the ways in which their lives are impacted by trade, 
from the alarm clock or the phone that goes off to the carpet that they step on to the plate that they use for breakfast to the whatever they eat for breakfast to the transportation service that they use to get where they're going, whatever it happens to be, the apps, the social media, whatever it is that they're looking at on their phone, the ways in which a lot of that is trade dependent. Yeah, that's super important. And then I think you would say globalization matters to me and I will have to support people who are in favor of it, as opposed to saying trade is bad. Trade is responsible for all the evil in the world. Therefore, we shouldn't have trade. I think that's a problem. So I would like to see if my Christmas wish would be to have people think about why does it matter to me personally? And then like trickle that up to like, this actually matters and we need to do something about it besides, you know, throw rhetorical, you know, lightning bolts at one another and see what happens. Like, let's actually focus on how trade matters to me. I agree with that. Uh, just absolutely agree with that. And I hope that the incoming, uh, the upcoming um, ministerial in, um, in, in uh, WTO in February, at least, you know, delivers a few things to show that that it's alive. But I want to say just one last thing that we haven't touched about at all that gives me a little hope, but it's mixed with concern. And that is artificial intelligence. There is so much debate right now all over the world about the pros and cons and the possible dangers and, 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 and all that. But it has led to policymakers, business, inventors, academia coming together and discussing. Note big solutions yet, but the realization that this is a huge challenge that we need to address together. Maybe we need some global rules. And that's where, you know, humanity really can deliver things. If we sit together and think we need to have global rules to address global challenges, then maybe we can come back to some reason and say, okay, we need it in AI, we also need it in trade, we need it in, in, in global health, we need it in climate. Maybe that's where the hope lies. Thank you for that. And Junming, what, according to you, should we be looking out for in the world of trade in 2024? Yeah, so my, my wish list is uh, to go uh, uh, beyond trade, right? So I'd like to see the, uh, the much stronger recovery and flows of capital as well as people, right? Because capital is typically a, a canary of the coal mine, right? So therefore, if we see a lot more cross-border capital flows, right? Then, you know, we'll be able to see, you know, stronger interconnection across, you know, many different geographies and value chain. On people flows, right? So, you know, there is, you know, there, 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 for example, you know, there is huge misunderstanding between China and also the rest of the world, especially during the, the COVID period, right? And, and I think, you know, we need a lot more dialogues, right? And, uh, you know, not just among policymakers or business executives, but also ordinary people, right? General people, right? I hope, you know, they can travel around and talk to each other and then understand each other better. Thank you very much. Those are three excellent sort of wishes. And I hope they come, they come true in 2024. But unfortunately, this is all we have time for today. Thank you very much to Cecilia Malmström, Jomin Sung, and Deborah Elms for talking to me today. And please check out our other conversations for the AIG Global Trade Series at www.aig.com slash GTS or get them through your podcast app. And this is all from us at the Global Trade Series team for 2023. We look forward to welcoming you back next year. And remember, make sure that 2024 is a happy trade year for you. The AIG Global Trade Series 2023 is an international partnership between AIG, the Aspen Institute Germany, 
SEBRI, the Brazilian Center for International Relations, Chatham House, the Klingendal Institute, the Institute of International Economic Law at Georgetown University Law Center, the International Chamber of Commerce, UK and France, ISPI, the Italian Institute for International Political Studies, the Jacques Delors Institute, Rieti, the Research Institute of Economy, Trade and Industry, and the St. Gallen Endowment for Prosperity Through Trade. To access articles and opinion pieces from partners in the Global Trade Series and to listen to more episodes on global trade, visit www.aig.com forward slash GTS or follow the AIG Global Trade Series wherever you get your podcasts.